Chapter Sixteen of the Millionaire Baby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter Sixteen, An All-Conquering Beauty. I was one of the first to procure and read a New York paper next morning. Would I discover in the columns any hint of the preceding day's events in Yonkers, which, if known, must forever upset the wagon theory? No, that secret was still my secret, only shared by the doctor, who, so far as I understood him, had no intention of breaking his self-imposed silence, till his fears of some disaster to the little one had received confirmation. I had, therefore, several hours before me yet for free work. The first thing I did was to hunt up Miss Graham. She met me with eagerness, an eagerness I found it difficult to dispel with my disappointing news in regards to Dr. Poole. "'He is not the man,' said I. "'Can you think of any other?' She shook her head, her large grey eyes, showing astonishment, and what I felt bound to regard as an honest bewilderment. "'I wish to mention a name,' said I. "'One I know?' she asked. "'Yes.' "'I know of no other person capable of wrongdoing that child.' "'You are probably right, but there is a gentleman, one interested in the family, a man with something to gain. "'Mr. Rathbone, you must not mention him in any such connection. "'He is one of the best men I know. "'Kind, good, and oh-so-sensitive. "'A dozen fortunes wouldn't tempt a man of his stamp to do any one living a wrong, "'let alone a little innocent child.' I know, but there are other temptations greater than money to some men, infinitely greater to one as sensitive as you say he is. What if he loved a woman? What if his only hope of winning her? You must not think that of him, she again interposed. Nothing could make a villain of him. I have seen him too many times in circumstances which show a man's good character." He is good through and through, and in all that concerns Gwendolen honorable to the core. I once saw him save her life at the risk of his own. You did? When? Years ago? No, lately, within the last year. Tell me the circumstances. She did. They were convincing. As I listened, the phantasm of the night before assumed fainter and fainter proportions. When she had finished, I warmly remarked that I was glad to hear the story of so heroic an act. And I was, not that I ascribed too deep a significance to the word which had escaped Mr. Rathbone on the dock, but because I was glad to have my instinctive confidence in the man verified by facts. It seemed to clear the way before me. Ellie, said I, it seemed both natural and proper to call her by that name now. What explanation would you give if under the circumstances, all circumstances are possible, you know, you heard this gentleman speak of feeling guilty in connection with Gwendolyn Ocumpaugh? I should have to know the circumstances, was her quiet answer. Let me imagine some. Say that it was night, late night, at an hour when the most hardened among us are in a particularly responsive condition. Say that he had been spending hours near the house of the woman he had long loved, but had quite despaired of winning in his greatly hampered condition. And with the fever of this longing upon him, 
but restrained by emotions of the nature which we cannot surmise, had now found his way down to the river, to the spot where the boats have clustered, and men crouched in the gruesome and unveiling search we know of. Say that he hung there long over the water, gazing down in silence, in solitude, alone, as he thought, with his own conscience and the suggestions offered by that running stream where some still think, despite facts, despite all the probabilities, that Gwendolen had found rest, and when his heart was full, should be seen to strike his breast and utter with a quick turn of his face up the hill this one word, guilty. What would I think? This, that being overwrought by the struggle you mention, a struggle we can possibly understand when we consider the unavoidable consciousness which must be his, of the great change which would be effected in all his prospects if Gwendolen should not be found, he gave the name of guilt to feelings which some would call simply human. Ellie, you are an oracle. This thought of hers had been my thought ever since I had time really to reflect upon the matter. I wonder if you will have an equally wise reply to give to my next question. I cannot say from my intuition I am really not wise. Intuition is above wisdom. Does your intuition tell you that Mrs. Carew is the true friend she professes to be to Mrs. Ocumpa? Ah, that is a different thing. The clear brow I loved, there. How words escape a man, lost its smoothness, and her eyes took on a troubled aspect while her words came slowly. I do not know how to answer that offhand. Sometimes I have felt that her very soul was knit to that of Mrs. Ocumpa, and again I have had my doubts. But never deep ones, never any such as would make it easy for me to answer the question you have just put me. Was her love for Gwendolen sincere? I asked. Oh, yes, oh, yes. That is, I always thought so, and with no qualification till something in her conduct when she first heard of Gwendolen's disappearance, I cannot describe it, gave me a sense of disappointment. She was shocked, of course, and she was grieved, but not hopelessly so. There was something lacking in her manner, we all felt it. Mrs. Ocumpa felt it, and let her dear friend go the moment she showed the slightest inclination to do so. "'There were excuses for Mrs. Carew, just at that time,' said I. "'You forget the new interest which had come into her life. "'It was natural that she should be preoccupied.' "'With thoughts of her little nephew,' replied Miss Graham. "'True, true. "'But she had been so fond of Gwendolen, and you would have thought. "'But why all this talk of Mrs. Carew? "'You don't believe. "'Surely you cannot believe.' "'that Mrs. Carew is a charming woman. "'Oh, yes, but I do. "'Mr. Rathbone shows good taste. "'Ah, is she the one? "'Did you not know it? "'No, yet I have seen them together many times. "'Now I understand much that had always been a mystery to me. "'He never pressed his suit. "'He loved, but he never harassed her. "'Oh, he is a good man.' "'This with emphasis.' "'Is she a good woman?' 
Miss Graham's eyes suddenly fell, then rose again until they met mine fully and frankly. "'I have no reason,' said she, "'to believe her otherwise. "'I have never seen anything in her to hinder my esteem, only—' "'Finish that only. "'She does not appeal to me, as many less gifted women do. "'Perhaps I'm secretly jealous of the extreme fondness "'Gwendolyn has always shown for her. "'If so, the fault is in me, not in her.' What I said in reply is not germane to this story. After being assured by a few more discreet inquiries in some other perfectly safe quarters, that Miss Graham's opinion of Mr. Rathbone was shared by those who beat knew him, I returned to the one spot most likely to afford me a clue to, if not an explanation of, this elusive mystery. What did I propose to myself? first to revisit Mrs. Carew and make the acquaintance of the boy Harry. I no longer doubted his being just what she called him, but she had asked me to call for this purpose, and I had no excuse for declining the invitation, even if I had desired to do so. Afterward, but first let us finish with Mrs. Carew. As she entered her reception room that morning, she looked so bright, that is, with the instinctive brightness of a naturally vivacious temperament, that I wondered if I had been mistaken in my thought that she had had no sleep all that night, simply because many of the lights in her house had not been put out till morning. But as inspection of her face revealed lines of care, which only her smile could efface, and she was not quite ready for smiles, affable and gracious as she showed herself, her first words, just as I expected, were, "'There is nothing in the papers about the child in the wagon.' "'No, everything does not get into the papers.' "'Will what we saw and what we found in the bungalow last night?' "'I hardly think so. This is our own special clue, Mrs. Carew, if it is a clue. "'You seem to regard it as such.' "'With a shrug I declared that we had come upon a mystery of some kind.' But the child is not dead. That you feel demonstrated. Or don't you? As I said last night, I do not know what to think. Ah, is that the little boy? Yes, she gaily responded, as the glad step of a child was heard descending the stairs. Harry! Come here, Harry! she cried, with a joyous accent which a child's presence seemed to call out in some women. "'Here is a gentleman who would like to shake hands with you.' A sprite of a child entered, a perfect sunbeam irradiating the whole room. If, under the confidence induced by the vision I had had of him on his knees the night before, any suspicion remained in my mind of his being Gwendolyn Ocumpa in disguise, it vanished at the sight of the fearless head, lifted high in boyish freedom, and the gay swish-swish of the whip in his nervous little hand. "'Harry is playing horse!' he cried, galloping toward me in what he evidently considered true jockey-style. I made a gesture and stopped him. "'How do you do, little man? What did you say your name is?' "'Harry!' this very stoutly. "'Harry what? Harry Carew?' "'No, Harry, just Harry.' "'And how do you like it here?' "'I like it, I like it better than my old home. 
Where was your old home? I don't know. I didn't like it. He was with uncongenial people, and he is very sensitive, put in Mrs. Carew softly. I like it here, he repeated, and I like the big ocean. I am going on the ocean, and I like horses. Get up, Dandy, and he cracked his whip and was off again on his imaginary trot. I felt very foolish over the doubts I had so openly evinced. This was not only a boy to the marrow of his bones, but he was, as any eye could see, the near relative she called him. In my embarrassment I rose. At all events I soon found myself standing near the door with Mrs. Carew. A fine fellow, I enthusiastically exclaimed, and startlingly like you in expression. He is your nephew, I believe? Yes, she replied somewhat wistfully, I thought. I felt that I should apologize for, well, perhaps for the change she must have discerned in my manner. The likeness caused me a shock. I was not prepared for it, I suppose. She looked at me wonderingly. I have never heard anyone speak of it before. I am glad that you see it. And she seemed glad, very glad. But I know that for some reason she was gladder yet when I turned to depart. However, she did not hasten me. What are you going to do next? she inquired as she courteously led the way through the piles of heaped boxes and baskets, the number of which had rather grown than diminished since my visit the evening before. Pardon my asking. Resort to my last means, said I. See and talk with Mrs. Ocumpaugh. An instant of hesitation on her part, so short, however, that I could hardly detect it. Then she declared, But you cannot do that. Why not? She is ill. I am sure that they will let no one approach her. One of her maids was in this morning. She did not even ask me to come over. I am sorry, said I, but I shall make the effort. The illness which affects Mrs. Ocumpaugh can best be cured by the restoration of her child. But you have not found Gwendolen, she replied. No, but I have discovered footprints on the dust of the bungalow floor, and, as you know, a bit of candy which looks as if it had been crushed in a sleeping child's hand, and I am in need of every aid possible in order to make the most of these discoveries. They may point the way to Gwendolen's present whereabouts, and they may not, but they shall be given every chance. Whoop! Get up! Get up! broke in a childish voice from the upper landing. Am I not right? I asked. Always. Only, I am sorry for Mrs. Ocumpaugh. May I tell you? As I laid my hand upon the outer doorknob, just how to approach her? Certainly, if you would be so good. I would not ask for Miss Porter. Ask for Celia. She is Mrs. Ocumpaugh's special maid. Let her carry your message if you feel that it will do any good to disturb her. Thank you. The recommendation is valuable. Good morning, Mrs. Carew. I may not see you again. May I wish you a safe journey? Certainly. Are we not almost friends? Why did I not make my bow and go? 
There was nothing more to be said, at least by me. Was I held by something in her manner? Doubtless, for while I was thus reasoning with myself, she followed me out onto the porch, and with some remark as to the beauty of the morning, led me to an opening in the vines whence a fine view could be caught of the river. But it was not for the view she had brought me there. This was evident enough from her manner, and soon she paused in her observations of the beauties of nature, and with a strange ringing emphasis, for which I was not altogether prepared, remarked with feeling, I may be making a mistake. I was always an unconventional woman, but I think you ought to know something about Mrs. Ocumpaugh's private history before you see her. It's not a common one, at least its romantic elements, and an acquaintance with some of its features is almost necessary to you if you expect to approach her on so delicate a matter with any hope of success. But perhaps you are better informed on this subject than I supposed. Detectives are a mine of secret intelligence, I am told. Possibly you have already learned from some other source the story of her marriage and homecoming to Homewood, and the particular circumstances around her early married life? No, I disclaimed in great relief, and I have no doubt with unnecessary vivacity. On the contrary, I have never heard anything said in regard to it. Would you like to? Men have not the curiosity of women, and I do not wish to bore you. But I see that I shall not do that, she exclaimed. Sit down, Mr. Trevitt. I shall not detain you long. I have not much time myself. As she sank into a chair in saying this, I had no alternative but to follow her example. I took pains, however, to choose one which brought me into the shadow of the vines, for I felt some embarrassment at this new turn in conversation, and was conscious that I should have more or less difficulty in hiding my only too intense interest in all that concerned the lady of whom we were speaking. Mrs. Ocumpaugh was a western woman, Mrs. Carew began softly, the oldest of five daughters. There was not much money in the family, but she had beauty, all commanding, all conquering beauty, not the beauty you see in her today, but the exquisite, pervasive loveliness which seizes upon the imagination as well as moves the heart. I have a picture of her at eighteen, but never mind that. Was it affection for her friend which made Mrs. Carew's always rich voice so very mellow? I wished I knew, but I was successful, I think, in keeping that wish out of my face, and preserving my manner of the simply polite listener. Mr. Ocumpaugh was on a hunting trip, she proceeded, after a slight glance my way. He had travelled the world over and seen beautiful women everywhere, but there was something in Marian Allison which he had found in no other, and at the end of their first interview he determined to make her his wife. A man of impulses, but also a man of steady resolution, Mr. Trevitt. Perhaps you know this? I bowed. A strong man, I remarked. And a romantic one. He had this intention from the first, as I have said, but he wished to make himself sure of her heart. He knew how his advantages counted, 
how hard it is for a woman to disassociate the man from his belongings, and, having a spirit of some daring, he resolved that this Pearl of the West, so I have heard him call her, should marry the man, and not his money. Was he as wealthy then as now? Almost. Possibly he was not quite such a power in the financial world, but he had Homewood in almost as beautiful a condition as now, though the new house was not put up till after his marriage. He courted her, not as the landscape painter of Tennyson's poems, but as a rising young businessman who had made his way sufficiently to give her a good home. This home he did not have to describe, since her own imagination immediately pictured it as much below the one she lived in. And he was years younger than her, hard-working father. Delighted with this naivete, he took pains not to disabuse her mind of the simple prospects with which she was evidently so well satisfied, and succeeded in marrying her, and bringing her as far as our station below there, without her having the least suspicion of the splendor she was destined for. And now, Mr. Trevitt, picture, if you can, the scene of that first arrival. I have heard it described by him, and I have heard it described by her. He was plainly dressed, so was she, and lest the surprise should come before the proper moment, he had brought her on a train little patronized by his friends, the sumptuousness of the solitary equipage standing at the depot platform must in consequence have struck her all the more forcibly, and when he turned and asked her if she did not admire this fine turnout, you can imagine the lovely smile with which she acknowledged its splendor, and then turned away to look up and down for the streetcar she expected to take with him to their new bridal home. He says that he caught her back with the remark that he was glad she liked it, because it was hers and many more like it. But she insisted that he did not say a word, only smiled in a way to make her see for whom the carriage door was being held open. Such was her entrance into wealth and love and, alas, into trouble. For the latter followed hard upon the two first. Mr. Ocumpaugh's mother, who had held sway at Homewood for thirty years or more, was hard as the nether millstone. She was a Rathbone, and had brought both wealth and aristocratic connections into the family. She had no sympathy for penniless beauties, she was a very plain woman herself, and made those first few years of her daughter-in-law's life as nearly miserable as any woman's can be who adores her husband. I have heard that it was a common experience for this sharp-tongued old lady to taunt her with the fact that she brought nothing into the family but herself, not even a towel. And when two years had passed and no child came, the biting criticisms became so frequent that a cloud fell over the young wife's sensitive beauty, which no after-happiness had ever succeeded in fully dispelling. Matters went better after Gwendolen came, but in reckoning up the possible defects in Mrs. Ocumpaugh's character, you should never forget the twist that may have been given to it by that mother-in-law. "'I have heard of Madame Ocumpaugh,' I remarked, rising, anxious to end an interview whose purport was more or less enigmatic to me. 
She is dead now, happily. A woman like that is accountable for much more than she herself ever realizes. But one thing she never succeeded in doing. She never shook Mr. Ocumpaugh's love for his wife or hers for him. Whether it was the result of that early romantic episode of which I have spoken, or whether their natures are peculiarly congenial, the bond between them has always been one of exceptional strength and purity. "'It will be their comfort now,' I remarked. Mrs. Carew smiled, but in a dubious way that added to my perplexity, and made me question more seriously than ever just what her motive had been in subjecting me to these very intimate reminiscences of one I was about to approach on an errand of whose purport she could have only a general idea. Had she read my innermost soul? Did she wish to save her friend, or save herself, or even save me from the result of a blind use of such tools, as were the only ones afforded me? Impossible to determine. She was, at this present moment, as she had always been, in fact, an insolvable problem to me, and it was not at this hurried time and with such serious work before me that I could venture to make any attempt to understand her. "'You will let me know of the outcome of your talk with Mrs. Ocumpaugh,' she cried, as I moved to the front of the porch. It was for me to look dubious now. I could make no such promise as that. "'I will let you know the instant there is any good news,' I assured her. And with that I moved off, but not before hearing the peremptory command with which she entered the house. "'Now, Dinah, quick!' Evidently her preparations for departure were to be pushed. End of chapter 16